2: We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast.
3: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
4: Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 34. I'm Jessica Yaquinto and I'll be your host today. And today we're talking about planting seeds for transformation in cultural heritage management. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that we're recording this episode in Mancas, Colorado, on new t- treaty lands as well as the ancestral Puebloan homeland and part of the Dineta. So to get us started, we have a, a bit of a, a group episode today. So we're going to go one by one and introduce ourselves.
5: My name is Genevieve Carey. I'm a community archaeologist from Montana with um, working for Applied Archaeology International.
6: Uh Claire. That's hello in our language. My name is Isaac Webb or Zach Webb. I'm a Wadhandi man, marman from the southwest corner of Western Australia. I work with my communities in community archeology span and working with the elders
7: on cultural preservation and heritage management. G'day, my name's Dave Guilfoyle. I'm a US-Australian community archeologist working on a number of projects across the four corners, Alaska and parts of Australia. Um, doing collaborative community-based heritage preservation projects.
3: Hello, my name is Tess Linston. My lineage is the Yampa and Brebe tribes. Um, my company is Creations Curations, and a fraction of that is doing cultural appropriation, um, promotion of Indigenous peoples' artwork, telling their story, and having sustainability through their artwork. And I advocate and educate for cul- cultural appropriation projects and awareness.
8: Hello, my name is Robert Bearhart. I am an Ojibwe person. I'm also a community archaeologist i with have been working with AI for the last three years now.
4: And would you mind one of you explaining a little bit more, giving us a little background on A AIA, correct? A and the acronym <laughs> as well.
7: Yeah, so AI is Applied Archaeology International and essentially we work, you know, internationally to work under the direction of local elders in developing collaborative projects that they see as their priority based around heritage preservation. And a lot of that sort of model has a, you know, a local application, obviously, but there's also some uh, aspects of what we do that are quite similar in, you know, in everywhere we work in terms of how elders want to be engaged and the type of work that they're looking at doing. Um, so we're exploring that, developing the model, and setting up a number of projects to, to basically, um, very practical projects to get on the ground, working around cultural places under cultural protocols, um, and doing a lot of sort of um, restoration, preservation work, mm-hmm. empowering youth. So there's a social outcome to the project, and a lot of environmental work around around these places okay before we
4: switch topics from that i'm just curious because i know there's a lot of us and a lot of our listeners that are really interested in making that kind of work happen and so just on a purely practical level where do you guys get most of your funding for those kinds of projects
7: um it's mixed it's definitely a struggle we we write a lot of grants and the grant Writing process is actually part of our model in a way by working from the ground up with communities and spending the time developing project ideas with communities and then looking for funding sources to target um, those types of projects. But we're also exploring how to make it kind of a a, a sort of an economic model where there is a little bit of a bias in the way um, archaeology is funded in general. You know that. it's very top heavy with research um, projects and also sort of commercial archaeology or what they call in this country cultural resource management where it's essentially a business and for profit whereas we're trying to look at how heritage preservation under community controlled processes can can be at the same level mm-hmm. of funding and recognized and valued as something that should be resourced so so we we we're doing a sort of a mixed approach to, to project development and that's, you know, running grants, but also, you know, look, exploring contracts, collaborative projects that help bring in resources to to these types of um, community projects.
4: Mm-hmm.
7: And Tess, I
4: imagine that's a similar situation for you with, with your kind of work with funding.
3: Yes, absolutely. Like, yeah, mainly just grants and volunteer work and, yeah, most of my work has up to this point has not been funded it's just a, a a calling you know to part of um healing our lineages and just bringing that awareness about preservation and, and reverence for indigenous people's culture
4: great so how did you all meet how did you all get connected
6: well for myself i i've worked with uh dave in australia he approached our community uh years ago now And it took a while for him to gain the trust of the community. But eventually we got there on working on various community projects and restoration projects of rock art, petroglyphs, as well as midden sites and tool sites and traditional law areas as well. So we worked across uh, various amounts of projects um, and then we've just continued to work right up until today, until I've been invited to come over and assist in uh, the 550 project, but also meet the community, meet the the Ute people, also meet the Hopi, and just basically do a cultural exchange, which has been funded by um, MRBTA, which is the Margaret River Busselton Tourism Association that we have a MOU with, which is a memorandum of understanding Mm -hmm. and we have a three year contractual binding agreement. So they, when this opportunity came up, they said, we'll pay for the tickets, just give us a report and and what you've experienced on and how different uh, mechanisms of uh, working with traditional owners and cultural management and all that sort of stuff and see how we can do that cross-cultural exchange program.
8: I first met Dave and Jen um, three years ago now, uh, doing a field school. They had worked with the Canadian Indian tribe and I kind of grew up doing uh, community based archaeology programs with them through Sistine camp. That's how I met up with them and just started working with them through that Yeah? so yeah went over to uh went over to Zach's country and did some uh did some repatriation stuff Mm-hmm. So, and that was, that was my second internship, which had to do the internship and go to the school at the same time. So teaching yourself a lot of the skills and Mm -hmm. (laughs) like GIS, a lot of really hard subjects trying to teach myself that and do really amazing work, like doing repatriation. So awesome, amazing experience.
4: So where were you at school?
8: So... I went to Salish Kootenai Travel College um, studying Travel Historic Preservation. It's archaeology and anthropology in a community sense, um, while also kind of studying how to be a travel historic preservation officer. So that's my background.
4: So, was uh, Aaron Brin one of your professors? Yes, Aaron okay.
8: Bryn's a good friend of mine.
4: Okay. He was on the podcast. Too, really? So. <laughs> yes. So, I saw that when, when Dave sent that in the email. I was like, oh, I bet they know each other. Sorry. Okay. Side note. All right. Did anyone else want to go next on how they...
6: I guess to touch a little bit on that too, I'm just meeting Robert, Bobby for the first time. Uh, I was actually up in the Pilbara, which is quite a a few thousand kilometres away, up north from my traditional lands of the Wadandi people, of the saltwater people. I was actually up in the north uh, working on a community-based ranger program. So we were getting uh, traditional owners trained up in conservation land management, but also how they are directed by their elders under the cultural management guidelines of their uh, management plan for their national park. Um, implementing uh, how, how they'd like to see their country managed. So at that point in time, Robert came over, um, got to meet my, my father and my family, uh, what do we call our our family, and yeah and helped out to do the repatriation of our old people who had been in the, the museum. Uh, in boxes uh, since about the fifties. So the the late 1950s when they were taken out of our burial chambers, our um, Yarling, our cave systems uh, to open up our region for tourism. So it's now coming over here, getting to meet him for the first time, which is just great and um, pay homage and that of being able to, that I wasn't there, but (laughs) being able to help out my community and elders by doing the repatriation?
5: Yeah, I guess the way um, I got involved with this type of work was similar to Bobby. I did a field school down in Australia, and that was the, at the end of my um, four-year undergrad degree as an archaeology student. And I was feeling pretty disillusioned, actually, at the moment and just felt like something was missing in that type of um, degree in sort of the academic world in a way. And that's when Dave came along and he gave a talk on the field school and the type of sort of community archaeology that was applied archaeology type stuff that was happening down in um, Australia. And he was offering a field school. So went down there, met community. Actually, yeah, the first place I went to was what Andy Country, Zach's place. And that was it. That's what was missing was um, people from archaeology. So that was...
3: This is Tess. So here in the small community of Mancus we just kind of make friends, but, um, <laughs> so I would walk in the mornings and I would walk by this home and there was this truck out front and it had Applied Archaeology International. And I was like, Ooh, what's that? Yeah. And, um, I remember having mixed feelings and I was like, Oh, are these people desecrating, you know, cultural sites, but I just had this lightness about it, so I was like, I have to find out what that is. And so I would said I was going to go knock on the door one day, and then we happened to be um, socializing, and I just met Genevieve and David then and then heard about their work, and um, I just remember getting Spirit Sparks, and part of that was like I didn't quite understand and I still don't how we will be collaborating together. Mm-hmm. But in 2012... Uh, I attended the Institute of American Indian Art and that was guided through my great grandmother and she, I was at a crossroads in my life and, and she came to me and she said, it's time to heal our, heal our lineage and I was like, okay, whatever that means. And so it, it did lead me to um, the Institute of American Indian Arts and I studied one of my degrees in Native Arts and Culture Museum Studies and there's been many experiences where I've you know, not intentionally knowing I was healing my lineage, but then I just trust in that process and realize, OK, this is part of healing our lineages. And so I feel like on a, a more uh, spiritual level, like just being among these just devoted, maybe heartful people that, you know, were are just kindred spirits wanting to restore and Remember, remember the reverence for indigenous peoples' cultures.
4: So, Tess, just to, I mean, there's so many things that I want to touch on that all of you said. I mean, <laughs> this, we may end up having to do more than one because, Lord. But how did you um, get your particular focus on cultural appropriation? And, and can you talk a little bit more about that?
3: I was having a bit of what I call, some people call it a life crisis. I called it, um, create my canvas path Uh, I was just really asking I had a holistic wellness practice and I part of holistic wellness is reverence for nature and there was something that was just kind of pulling me and I was asking what's next so I was in Santa Fe studying to be a, a kundalini teacher and I met this woman and she ended up inviting me to IA and I went there and I was waiting to meet with her and I saw this brochure and it had an image of pottery on it mm-hmm. and it and it was very emotional to me because I'd been having dreams of pottery and didn't know what it meant mm-hmm. and so I went into her office and she just said okay sign here you you know this is where you need to be I so I started studying taking classes on um, Native American history, if you will. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I was inspired through um, learning about NAGPRA, mm-hmm. the Native American Grave Protection and Repatriation Act. Right. And it was just really disturbing to me. And so, you know, I, I felt really angry at first. And I didn't quite know what to do with that. Like, I it was just all being held in. Right. And then I realized I started writing papers and talking to people and it was just, you know, I kept praying, actually, and asking, you know, what am I to do with this information? Mm-hmm. And so it was just something that spiritually evolved. And um, I've seen how transformative it can be just through educating people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I credit my great-grandmother in spirit. Yeah.
4: <laughs> so I guess that ties in really interestingly with, with the project that the two of you worked in. Worked on And I'm really curious, and I'm sure all of our listeners would be really interested to hear how the situation with repatriation is different between the US and Australia, if, if anyone feels like they can touch on that a little bit.
6: I guess I'm just working out and seeing uh, differences, but similarities at the moment between our two countries. I'm seeing, like, say for the 550 project, um, for instance, for us, our elders would have been involved right at the beginning of the process. It's a thing which we call in our community, ask first. So we just say, if you just ask first and ask our elders, usually our grandfathers and kabari grandmothers, they can tell you where cultural significance is I mean, the whole country is culturally significant. You can't try to separate one part from another. But they can give you guidance and cultural guidance in um, mitigation so that you're not destroying people's heritage and culture that still lives today, that it's a living culture. It's a living, breathing thing uh, just like around the country as well. The country is alive and a breathing, living thing that we're all connected to. So... It's learning me for myself, learning these different practices from my country back in Wadhandi, Pirlum Budya, Saltwater country and my grandmother and grandfather's country. And, yeah, and just seeing the similarities and differences here. But I've seen, I guess, yeah, a lot of the times as First Nations, as Indigenous people, we don't want to stand in the way uh, or be gatekeepers to stop so-called progress or whatever it might might be but it's just more about yeah working together so that we can make sure that everyone's cultural safety is okay so it's much like occupational health and safety in cultural heritage we have cultural safety so the country will punish maybe not us or it might punish us as the custodians and caretakers for not giving the right advice on how protect her or look after her because we say like you look after our mother country and our mother you look after your mother she'll look after you Um, but if you disrespect her she won't respect you she won't house you and feed you and all those things so it's just learning those different ways and uh, about and i guess the thing is is we wouldn't have you shouldn't have to for us my belief is take away those things all those artifacts those history and put them into a museum or a box because that's how I met bobby because we were reversing that process how we met dave how we've met together we're trying to flip that on its head and and reverse that way of thinking and like we say it's always about ask first if you ask first and ask the communities and um and just always, if, you, if you're not getting the answer, go back to the drawing board, go back to the start again. Um, it might be a longer process, uh, but that's just the way it is. And also make sure that it's funded properly. Make sure that when you're talking to your elders and you're, that these that people are providing a service, so therefore it's a fee-for-service. So just as you would get a plumber in to unplug your drains or build your house as a carpenter this is a service that's provided, so there has to be that that sort of, um, that funding model as well to make sure that that is backed up for community empowerment.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I wanna reiterate that, how many times I've heard federal agencies or different people be shocked that we plan on paying elders, which in my mind is absolutely absurd because you would never consider not paying any of your other uh, contractors. And the fact that they'll argue with me over a price that is a quarter of what I've seen some anthropologists charge. So,
3: yes. <laughs> it's all a part of healing our lineages. But I wanted to elaborate on what Zach said. I'm um, Tess speaking. The whole concept of repatriation needs to be redefined. Like, don't desecrate sacred lands and sites and the environment and then want credit because you're... Repatriating it because the process to repatriate back to the tribes and is, I, I can't even have described that. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> but I, I want repatriation to be just stop doing it, right. redefining
8: repatriation.
4: Right, right. And did you have anything that you wanted to add about that whole experience?
8: Um, I mean, it was an amazing, magical experience, but it was kind of refreshing to see. You know, the laws that you're studying and the laws that you're you know thinking about are being put in practice and in the most beneficial way possible. So like here the and there the the language of the laws is like remarkably similar, but here it's not put into practice like it is over in Australia. here it's there's definitely a disconnect. And, you know, granted, a lot of people don't have ceremonies for reburial because you're not supposed to do that. You're just not supposed to dig it <laughs> right. up and right. you know, there's a there's a right way and a wrong way to do things and in my experience what I've heard and I guess on various projects, um, over here it's not really in the US, it's not really done, in my opinion, in the right way and it's it's slowly getting to that. But it could, in my opinion, be a lot quicker (laughs) and faster than it is happening.
4: So in your opinion, what would be the right way or how would you
8: like to see it done? I guess, you know, from the start, you know, you do have Mm -hmm. consultation with communities. But a lot of it's kind of like segmented. And, you know, not everyone from the community needs to participate because there's a lot of, I don't want to say taboos, but a lot of... uh, Do's and don'ts about ancestors and especially remains. I think it should be more community-based because it is a it is a process of healing, and right now it's not as beneficial as it should be.
3: This is Tess speaking. I would like for changes of you know what's taking place and what Applied Archaeology International is doing is consulting with the tribes and but more than just consulting like their wisdom being implemented.
2: off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code HEVO, H-E-V-O.
0: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
1: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
0: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time.
1: And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
0: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
4: I know that um, you guys have been talking a lot with, with different people about that project. Can you give us a little bit more background on what exactly your guys' role has been and just like some additional background on the project as a whole?
7: Yeah, so the US 550 project is a Colorado Department of Transportation initiative to uh, expand a section of that highway, I guess, for safety reasons, but it does go across uh, High Mesa above the Animas River. I guess our role was engaged as a subcontractor, in -hmm. essence, to another archaeological firm that was doing the mitigation of that right-of-way where the road is planned to be expanded across private land mm-hmm. and as Tess said a number of ancestral cultural places were located there on the initial surveys and mm-hmm. the mitigation plan that was developed by the cultural resource management company was to salvage essentially excavate those places the, the phrase that's sort of used is data recovery mm-hmm. so as the mitigation response our role was to look at uh, uh, like an outreach component to that, and talk with cultural leaders, um, tribal groups, tribal organisations, and youth about you know their feelings of the project, that that stage of the project, do they want to be involved? Mm-hmm. Um, how would they like to be involved? What are their thoughts on the whole process? Mm-hmm. And it was an interesting journey for us because you know it was there was a lot of sort of feedback that not you know don't really want to be involved at that stage of this project you know that it was it was disturbing as um mm-hmm. to see sites excavated for a lot of people there was ancestral human remains which meant a lot of people didn't want to be out there right in that area and especially youth so for us we had to take that information and redesign that sort of engagement process and mm-hmm. the what what came out of it really was an alternative, you know, like we they they were giving us information about next time, <laughs> do things this way, so we've sort of developed, um, and 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 they also wanted to do projects, as an example, of an alternative, so mm-hmm. you know we we've been down, with Hopi, this last week doing a spring restoration project, mm-hmm. and you know, down way down in Arizona, wave. Uh, far from the US 550 corridor. So that's interesting in itself because it's about Hopi educating us, educating the, the that system is saying, you know, we we want to do heritage preservation projects ultimately. Right. And, and this is how we'd like to do it, you know, under elders' guidance, have youth opportunities and fix up places, you know. And in this case, it was a sacred spring. But it's also a message to planners and saying we sh- – we should be involved at the very first stage of the planning process so that, as Zach was saying, we, we can help guide that planning process. Right. So our work has evolved in this particular project to develop a case study which it sort of enters the realm of counter-mapping, as mm-hmm. they call it, um, where a lot of us respond to one plan. So someone puts a plan for a road or a pipeline or a housing estate and we all scramble to um, under you know federal environmental heritage laws to respond to that plan whereas we look to um, say well that's that's one plan mm-hmm. it, it may have some good aspects to it but we go and talk with elders and community and say um, what's your plan for this area you know over a 20 50 year period mm-hmm. and if the two plans overlap and they they can work together then great if there's some um, conflict we need to resolve that and look at solutions to doing that so I guess that's how our role now is taking the lessons we've learnt from elders and the, the, the clear messages that, that they've given us about their thoughts and feelings on the, this particular um, highway project and do a sort of an alternative plan which can hopefully be used as a good case study or a model for the next, plan, you know, in the next project that comes along that mm-hmm. we, and we don't really respond. We don't want to react to plans. We want to be strategic and have agencies, archaeologists, anthropologists working collaboratively with elders. So how do we, how do we foster that type of relationship mm-hmm. where, where we're not reacting to these sort of um, situations, which, you know, is, um, it's difficult to resolve at this late stage. You know, right. we're, we're at a point now where everything's in place for this development, whereas the elders are telling us, you know, maybe next time let's, let's get us involved from the start. Right, right.
3: And so just to, to elaborate on that, you know, a lot of agencies follow guidelines that are in compliance with notifying the tribes of what they're doing. So in place of that, you know, it being more reverent, like I d- instead of complying, like just having reverence of a collaboration and creating a new uh, paradigm in the field of not just archaeology, but in all situations where that are cultural appropriate
4: so I want to talk a little bit more about this particular road trip that you guys are doing and you know you were starting off doing some work on the the 550 project Um, and that this is kind of um, it sounds like what got this all going but what has this experience like first of all can you talk about where you guys actually have have been going on this road trip and where you're going to be going because it's not over and what that experience has been like for for all of
6: you well for me i think it's been a great experience i've enjoyed every second of it uh since landing here um in the u.s i think it's great getting out meeting community had the um honor and privilege of meeting some of the Southern Ute and the Ute people. We went out to Ignacio, to the community. Uh, We've been around to Canyon of the Ancients. We've been up to Mesa Verde. We've checked out uh, what it's like in a government sense to run a national park through a different perspective and talk about other people's heritage and and ancestral um, belongings and everything. Uh, to then have meet the Hopi and the Hopi come here, be shown around by them and then tell stories of their Puebloan ancestry and about kivas and about their ceremonies and just be immersed into the culture and then have the honour of being invited down to their buya, their buyara, their country as well. And to assist them and their elders on the restoration of a spring, as the old uncles say, like that, as water is life. So to help the country revive and where we can and do those sorts of things and those environmental restoration heritage sort of projects, and exactly to touch on exactly what Tess saying, just not going in there and destroying. It's more just preservation. We'd much preferred not to. Do any of – have any of these things unearthed? And just like Bobby was saying the same thing, like there are no ceremonies and things for these sorts of things. So that whole road trip though, coming down and being around the place and, yeah, I floated down the Animus as well. So I've got a uh, – I even went to Walmart as well. Oh. So, yeah, <laughs> um, all the different sorts of things. But, yeah, the, like the cultural aspect of it and meeting the communities has far outweighed everything and anything that I would have ever expected. Yeah. So for me, I just feel honoured and privileged that in our language we say, like I say, that a nyakya barra uh boyara. So nyari boyara. So I pay respects and homage to the elders past, present, and to the emerging next leaders uh, for allowing me to nyanan to sit, stop, and rest upon their boyara, on their country, and to... Why? So my ears are listening to their stories,
7: and I think like we you know we have a team um, that we've formed deliberately that's now international, and there is a there is a strategy here is to form sort of a an operation that provides alternatives, um, competes against mainstream commercial archaeology in a way mm-hmm. to collaborate with communities, and the you know we're all in a sense that brings us together as as individuals is our um, passion to step outside the mainstream system and try and create change, which is just change that's more equitable and more culturally appropriate, I think, in the way archaeology, anthropology is carried out. And I think a lot of the fields um, in general are going through a process of decolonisation and there's much talk about it. You know, the conferences have have whole sessions on it. So we're, I guess working on projects that help contribute to that process in a practical way so it's it's about bringing a whole bunch of case studies together to show you know uh, alternatives to the way things can be done Mm -hmm. um so that's what brings our team together and there's there's a lot more of us than are are here today that you know want to want to be involved in that type of project. um people that are sort of disillusioned with the way things are but want to create change and get active right so i think that's what unites us and you know, we're, we're, we need to have an integrated team because, you know, you need a collaborative approach to, to get projects done. Um, but also as a, as a um, company, in, in essence, I need different perspectives on how to do things and how to run things, you know, from Bobby and Zach and Tess and um, all the other people in our team because we're always learning, educate, you know, educating ourselves in, in how to do things. So we need that guidance as well. Whereas I think a lot of companies can just have a sort of static approach to things that follow a system with a, and a structure without um, knowing how to change themselves. Right. So so that's what brings us together, I guess, in a way to sort of uh, push for change, but in a positive um, solution-based approach, not a conflict-based approach.
4: Mm-hmm. So Bobby, just curious what this experience has been like for you, um, being from a different part of the US and seeing both You know, working with tribes out here, but then also working with Zach and um, this whole road trip experience, what it's been like for you.
8: It's been rather interesting. So I guess I got my start in archaeology when I was really young, 12. And we did. Wow. (laughs) So I've been doing archaeology for half my life now. Yeah. But my experience was like it was community-based archaeology. Mm-hmm. You know, you had the tribe. They backed up the projects and mm-hmm. the, the tribe, you know, put on the project. So, mm-hmm. in my experience, community-based archaeology was, that that was archaeology. That's just what you did. And it was interesting seeing the traditional archaeology, what's mainstream archaeology today. So... You know, these type of projects, it's, it's like home. It's just what you do, um, in my opinion. But so that whole, you know, the road trip hasn't been, it hasn't been strange or hasn't been, the learning process hasn't been, you know, as much it would be for other people because right. this is just, you know, it's what you do.
4: That's awesome, yeah. That would be nice if we trained trained a whole generation of archaeologists. Though that, that was just that was just what you do. We'll get there. <laughs> yeah, and I I do think I feel like it's happening. Um, I I feel like I've been having a lot of conversations lately that have been like some of the things that Dave was touching on about with the disillusionment, with a lot of archaeologists just feeling like they're. Not really contributing anything, and um, that the you know ultimately they're part of the problem, and you know just having these conversations with uh, recently with a couple of you know young archaeologists that are kind of newer to the field, and the fact that the problem is that those are the people that I think a lot of times leave archaeology, and in a lot of ways those are the kind of people that you want to stay, the people that are concerned about those kinds of issues for me, it was, I I feel like, um, the idea was always, uh, as long as I'm more helpful than I'm (laughs) hurting, um, like as long as, um, you know, when the field gets to the point where I'm no longer necessary, which will be an amazing day, then, then that would be the time to back away. But unfortunately I I don't feel like we're there yet. So what do we, what do we do to get there? I guess.
6: I think it's, some of the things what we've been discussing about, yeah, that interaction. Mm -hmm. The best thing is to get out, outside your comfort zone, outside an area and go meet community, you know. um, Like if I can land from Australia Mm -hmm. and go out to Ignacio and and to all these places and things like that, and Mm -hmm. it's just about getting out there, making those first steps, uh... Getting to know your local community your first nations people of where you live where you work where you raise your family and children Uh, so uh knows know whose whose country where you're sitting whose group what you're sitting on and um yeah try to integrate yourself into that community in the most respectful way and you'll see that well i've seen like it's reciprocated really well. People are the most kind, generous people. It's just about making those first moves. Mm-hmm. In Australia, we have very like a similar sort of thing where, for what we call Wajila, white man, non non Indigenous people, mm-hmm. um, sometimes it's a bit of a like stalemate, which I've seen. Uh, Who's going to move first in that game of chess? Uh, someone's too scared to approach forward, just like as First Nations people are the same. So we kind of stand there and look at each other or look at each other and then quickly look away and not sure who's going to do that. So like I say, just make that first step, make that move right. and you will be enriched uh, from your spirit to everything.
3: Right. This is Tess speaking. So my... Experience in working with, or the contribution, small contribution I make with Applied Archaeology International, is just makes me feel very hopeful, because oh, my great grandmother has this teaching that your the medicine, which could be the ch- the change they are making within their own field, the medicine that they carry is most potent when it's when it's the same medicine. So in other words, they're archaeologists but making change within the archaeology field mm-hmm. and then healing our lineages you know forming alliances and and so this whole history of us versus them needs to become and mm-hmm. and uh, collaboration um, I find it I see the transformative process with archaeologists the 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 love they have for indigenous people's culture, you know, for lack of a better term, but earth-based spirituality. Mm -hmm. I understand that their non-indigenous peoples draw to such a natural way of being and living, Mm -hmm. and so they would want to study it. But the part that I think needs to be amplified is the reverence for the culture. Mm -hmm. You know, in talking with archaeologists, and it's been tapped on in this conversation like they feel like they're part of the problem but there is a solution okay and that is that fascination or love that you have for archaeology just sprinkle some reverence into it
0: pulling up to mickey d's just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks Then, there are drinks from McDonald's.
1: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
0: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us
8: today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4 e models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.
4: All right. So I think, I think we could all talk about all, all of this for a lot longer. I think we all have a lot more that we could say. But we're we're getting about to the end of time, and I want to make sure everybody has a chance to add any final thoughts. So, why don't we go around, and anybody that wants to add anything else, let's let's have you jump in.
7: Yeah, I think ultimately, about um, you know, in, specifically for archaeology and archaeologists, it's it's just about respect, and that's what the message is where, wherever we work comes from. Just respect. You know, we're working on a lot of the time other people's heritage and culture and land. So. In that instance, you just there is an obligation to know um, whose land you're on, and um, personally, you know you should know the elders of that area, and that comes down to yourself. You know, you, you could be working for a company or a university department, but you still have that personal obligation to seek out the elders and the community, and um, introduce yourself and let them know, you know, what what your role is here. And I don't think it's it's a challenge. It's not a challenge that we're putting forward to mainstream archaeology. It's about um, just shifting the the dynamic, the, the way it's structured, changing the status quo so that there is um, an understanding that elders and community leaders are in control of projects. And that's going to take time to, to shift completely, especially in commercial archaeology, but it's happening. So your role as an individual can, can help make that change happen faster just by reaching out. Like as Zach said, just reach out. And there is a role for archeology. span you know, This isn't about shutting down the system. It's about knowing our place. You know, we, we, we shouldn't be leading these projects. We should know our place. We have some skills to offer. People like working with us um, as archeologists, if you know, we're, we're, it's structured right. There's, there's a position for elders, there's a position for cultural facilitators, there's a position for youth. And then people want projects like Bobby's community up in Alaska. You know, they're running a lot of community projects and they're doing a lot of archaeology and it's a lot more fulfilling type of work so the challenge for all of us now is just exploring how to take these models these case studies and implement them in in the government system in the, in the way that agency systems in the way they teach it and also the the commercial the crm components of our field how to embed that respectful process into into that that's that's what we're exploring this is
3: tas speaking so I just would like to invite listeners and to share this with their family and friends about cultural appropriation, not just in the field of archaeology, but in art and ceremony, you know, ask that, you know, you learn your own lineages and, and heal your lineage and not copy or claim other indigenous people's cultures and creating your own ceremony. Just having that integrity and dignity. And so my company, Creations Curations, you can find me on a Facebook page and if you would like more information about healing your own lineage and doing ceremony that's authentic to your... um, heritage then you can contact me and i also would like to just mention this book that is just so empowering and profound written by kathleen s Findair. it's called grave injustice it's the american indian repatriation movement in nagpra and if you're interested in learning more about repatriation and the grave injustices then this is um, a great read thank you
6: uh, final thoughts and stuff. I think exactly. This is Zach here. Just thinking about yeah, how how you work with your your traditional owners, your your custodians, your First Nations people coming together and be the change you want to see. Plant the seeds of change, and uh, like I said, you'll be so welcomed within the community. For me, on this journey, it's been amazing that the ocean or water, the ocean separates us but it doesn't separate us. It's the waters that connect us together and the stories that come
8: with that. I guess some of my final thoughts are, you know, something that's really important is to, like one, like you said, uh, reach out to your communities, but also reach out to the elders and kind of learn the do's and don'ts of certain things. You know, not every culture has the same cultural practices and it's not really cool to, you know, cultural appropriation, we, it's a big no-no term, but, you know, there is, there are certain things that you can appropriate effectively and efficiently and respectfully. Uh, the big thing is respectful appropriation and learning things to protect yourself or protect your family and you know, those kind of things I would say are, are really, really big in archaeology especially when you're dealing with, you know, another person's culture. Right.
5: Thank you, Jessica, and your team for creating this space to get voices out there and these um, issues and solutions as part of, um, yeah, in the space for people to hear. Appreciate that.
4: Thank you. Well, before we close out, I want to add a couple of things. Um, first of all, if you guys haven't seen it already, um, Simon Fraser university put together a great guide called, um, I think it's think before you appropriate or think don't appropriate or something like that. Um, so we can include that in the show notes as well. It's been on previous episodes, but if you haven't checked it out yet, it's a, it's a great guide. Also, I want to, to add a, a thought about making sure that when you're reaching out to elders and communities that you're not adding an extra burden on their plate so you know if you're the one reaching out you should be the one going to them, not expecting them to come to you. Um, you know, maybe bring food, <laughs> like the the normal kind of like respectful guest kind of things, you know, and then also like Bobby said, maybe doing maybe doing your research ahead of time and figuring out what being a respectful guest looks like. Um, so definitely reach out, but make sure that you're not doing it in a way that you're just adding to their plate. <laughs> so... Um, on that note, thank you all so much for, for taking time out of, out of your big trip and um, out of your week and all your work to talk to us and our listeners. So thank you. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash heritagevoices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org, or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo.
2: This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective.
5: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology
3: Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.
2: Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.
0: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks?